You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. John Wesley arrived in Georgia in February of 1736. The previous month, he was on a boat on his way to Georgia with great hopes of being a missionary and caring for the colonists there in their spiritual life and potentially reaching some of the indigenous peoples there with the gospel. He had high hopes and great dreams, but just before the ship came, during January, uh, Wesley and his fellow travelers were slammed by a pretty terrifying storm. If you've ever been uh, on a boat when a storm kind of comes in, comes in quickly, and it can get quite dangerous and quite scary very quickly. You can imagine in the 1730s, a boat getting pushed around, the kind of thing you see in movies and the mast, and maybe the sails are tearing and things are breaking and water's coming in. And Wesley discovered in that moment that he was both faithless and fearful. It was crystal clear to him that he didn't trust Jesus because he was scared out of his wits. He was fearful, and in his fear, he was afraid that he was going to die, and that if he died, he would meet God, and that he wasn't ready to meet God. Now remember who this guy is. A trained minister on a missionary journey. And he's afraid when he faces death, he's not ready to meet God. The storm is crashing, the waves are rolling over the edges of the ship. And during the storm, Wesley could hear something through the wind and the waves. It was a melody, and it was a group of German Christians singing hymns in the middle of the storm. So you can imagine the scene. You've got Wesley over here hanging on for dear life, deeply fearful. And then he can kind of hear a group of German believers singing hymns, completely at peace. No fear, complete faith, trusting Jesus in life or death. Well, the storm subsided, and they all made it safely to Georgia. And Wesley was so impressed by the faith of those German Christians, in contrast to his faithlessness, he was so impressed that he sought out their leader, their leader and the leader was a guy named Spangenberg. So he goes to Spangenberg, and he asks him some questions, you know, like, what's going on here? Help me understand. How is it that... that your men, your women, your children have this deep and abiding faith in this moment of peril. Like, help me, he asks. And Spangenberg replies. They talk for a little bit. And finally, the German gets around to two questions. He asks Wesley first, have you the witness within yourself? And then he asks him second, does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? And he's drawing on Romans chapter 8 there, isn't he? All who belong to Jesus, all who've been made children of God, the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, testifies with our spirits, bears witness with our spirits that we belong to Him. There's this deep knowing, this deep knowledge. Beyond all the external fruit, there's a deep 
experiential moment where Jesus in love just says, you belong to me and I belong to you. That's the thing Spangenberg's talking about. And Wesley was surprised by these questions. He wasn't prepared for that, and he didn't know how to answer. Spangenberg continued, do you know Jesus Christ? Now again, remember who he is. An ordained minister who's already been to his theological training school at one of the best universities in the world. He's been, he grew up in a Christian home. His daddy was a preacher. Now he's on mission to try to save Native Americans and plant churches and all the stuff. And when someone asks him, do you know Jesus Christ? This is what he says. You ready for it? I know that he's the Savior of the world. Now, is that true? Yeah. Is it the right answer? No. <laughs> And here's Wesley, he's in this moment, he knows all about Jesus. Like, all of his doctrines, all of his theology, it's all right. He can say the creed, he's read the books, he's preached the sermons, he knows about God. He knows about Jesus. He knows who he is. But when asked, do you know him yourself? His answer is, I know that he's the savior of the world. Kind of dodging the question, isn't he? Maybe he could have been a politician. Just like, let's change the subject if it gets uncomfortable. Spangenberg, though, is a good pastor, and he's persistent. Like, he's not going to be distracted. Says to Wesley, true, he is the savior of the world. But has he saved you? He specifically says, do you know that he has saved you? And Wesley responded weakly, I hope he has died to save me. Spangenberg pressed again, do you know yourself? And Wesley finally said, you, can, you get the sense the pain is just too heavy. He wants to end the conversation and get out of there. He says, I do. I know. I know myself. Yes, I know. But he later admitted, if you read his journals, that those were vain words. He didn't mean it. He's just trying to get out of this uncomfortable situation. So here's John Wesley, father of Methodism, the Wesleyan tradition in which we fall. Grew up in a preacher's home. Went to seminary, or what the version of it they had in the 1700s. Got ordained, preached the gospel, became a missionary. And when pressed, do you know Jesus? He lied and said yes. I think in that moment, Wesley began to discover that there's a difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. In that moment, maybe we could put it this way, Wesley discovered that there's this this very different thing, that knowing information about who Jesus is and what He's done is not the same thing as experiencing the love of Jesus 
in a saving way, in a way that rescues us, in a way that sets us free from fear and draws us more deeply into faith. For Wesley and for us, there's a bottom line there, isn't there? We can know a lot about God without being known by God. Paul introduces this movement towards knowledge of God in Galatians chapter 4, doesn't he? He's got the Galatians here and he's, he's engaging with them. He's trying to, to bring them back to a safe place. He's worried about some of the things they're doing. Worried that his work will be in vain, he says. He says in uh, verse 11, I'm afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. All of my efforts to, to minister to you and care for you, to preach the gospel for you. If you fall away, my work is wasted. And so he's, he's calling to them, he's drawing them in, and he invites them to think about how they first came to know Jesus and what happened at that moment and what things were like before in verse 8. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to being that by, beings that by nature are not God. So there are idols out there. They're not God. You're worshiping false gods, and they're, they're enslaving you. But... When the gospel is preached, there's a change. You move from knowing about God and the various false gods to knowing Him deeply, pers personally, truthfully, and transformatively. And now he's worried that they're going to go back. So you've got this language floating around all over the place about what it means to know God, and he says to be known by God. We're going to come to that in a minute. Before we get deep into that, it's helpful to understand that Paul has the exodus in the background here. You may have picked up on that as we were reading through it. All of that language about slavery and freedom and turning back. Did you catch all that? Listen to it one more time. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not God. Now, however, you came to know God, or rather be known by Him. How can you turn back? To the weak and beggarly elemental spirits, how can you want to be enslaved to them again? And if you remember, if you read through Exodus, God comes to the Israelite people and rescues them in power, doesn't he? He brings them out and he gives them his covenant. And they, they know him and, and, and he knows them at this point. They didn't know him like that before, did they? They knew about him. They knew enough to cry out to him. They knew enough that, that he, he had made some promises to their great-great-great-granddaddy Abraham about taking care of them. They knew that he should show up and deal with the injustice they were suffering, but that's about it. And so God does show up, and he rescues them in brilliance and in power and with glory, and he brings them out into the desert. And they're hanging out in the desert, and they're thinking this is a great deal. God is with us. We've got the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, like we're being, we're, we're here, we're good, he's leading us, he's, we're in his presence, and then a little time passes, and they start to complain. God is literally feeding them with bread that is falling out of the sky. Every day, whatever you need, here it is. Here's your daily bread, manna. And they say, you know, when we were in Egypt, sure we were slaves and had to build bricks for the pyramids and that sort of thing. But remember the melons and the leeks and the buffet. Like there was food and there was stability and there was security. And like we had, yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had shelter. We're out here in the middle of the desert. And somehow in their heads, they're thinking, 
we were being oppressed and enslaved. God, in His glory, rescued us from our slavery. But you know, upon reflection, maybe we had a better deal back in Egypt. And Paul is kind of drawing on that to say, look, you were enslaved to false gods. Now you've come to know the one true God. And the actions you're taking by insisting on having everyone who shows up at church observe the Jewish Old Testament is like going back to slavery. You're sort of saying the decisive victory hasn't been won, right? The, God brings the people out, sets them free. They want to go back. They're saying we haven't really been delivered. This isn't better, it's worse. We'd rather go back to the other thing. Paul says to the Galatians, you've been rescued, you've been delivered, but now you're trying to go back to the old ways of God's doing things, the, the pre-Jesus ways. You're calling the whole work of Christ into, into question. The decisive deliverance hasn't happened yet for them. And the risk is jeopardizing knowing God. That's the risk for Paul. That seems pretty heavy. Seems really, really heavy. And that's why his tone is the way it is. I'm perplexed, he says, about you. I want to see Christ formed in you. I showed up, like, remember what it was like when I got there the first time? And he had some sort of ailment. We, like, all the scholars wish Paul would have said a lot more about whatever his health problem was. You wouldn't believe how many articles and books have been written on this, and we just don't really know. But it sounds like he had a problem with his eyes. Maybe he was, couldn't see very well, or maybe he had some sort of eye disease. Maybe he had cataracts. I don't know. They couldn't deal with that back then. But whatever it is, he's like, you, like I was offering myself to you, and you were offering yourself to me, like to the point that you would have pulled out, you would have given me your eyes, which suggests he couldn't see. Like, that's how it was. And now look at us. We're in this conflict, and you're, you're, you're walking backwards. You're walking away. Jesus is trying to bring you forward. He's trying to bring you into maturity. He's trying to bring you into to wholeness. And you are insisting on the old way of doing things. Like the decisive victory has never happened. There's knowledge there. There's knowledge about ritual and there's knowledge about seasons and special days and festivals and what you can eat and what you can't eat. And like you know your Bibles really well, granted. But don't jeopardize knowing God. Don't jeopardize being known by Him. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? We talk a lot about knowing God. We don't always talk about being known by God. What's Paul getting at there? Could he be describing just this deep, mutual, self-giving covenant? That seems to be the peace for the Israelites that makes the difference. Like, you're in Egypt. You didn't know God. You knew a few things about Him, but you come out. He rescues you. He gives you His covenant now, you know Him, and He knows you. And that language of knowledge is about this, like there's this mutuality. You're not just 
studying the theology books to know stuff about God. Like he's given himself in a certain way. And all that anticipated the day when the Holy Spirit would come. When we, being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, would receive a new spirit to take up residence in us, his people. The kind of spirit who testifies, you're a child of God. Draws us into his life and fills us with his life. Who knows more about us than we do. Ever realize that? There are things that are going to come up future in your life that need to be dealt with that need to be offered to Jesus, you don't know about them yet. You know who does? The Spirit of God does. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about, like, yeah, it's important to know about God. It's not enough. Yeah, it's important to know God. Even more important is to be known by Him, to let Him bring to light the things in your life where He can form Christ. And it's easy for us to put up walls around that, isn't it? It's easy for us, like let this sink in, it's easy for us to get in normal Christian rhythms and not be known by God. And use the rhythms to keep God at arm's length. Because if we do the normal rhythms... The regular kind of, like if you're a Christian, here's the stuff you do. You go to church, you do the youth group thing, you serve a little bit, you stick around for the fellowship, you're showing up, people know you're one of us because you're here, and you're probably giving some and helping out. Like there's some rhythms, and we all do the rhythms, and the rhythms aren't bad, the rhythms are good. But we can kind of use the rhythms to say, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and yeah, maybe Jesus wants to dig in a little deeper, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm good. Like if we ever get to the place where we say to Jesus, I'm good, <laughs> we're not good. <laughs> Red flag, we're not good. If we ever get to that place. And I think that's where Paul is. He's saying, look, I know like you're doing all this stuff, but you're using the stuff as an excuse to not know the Lord. All the paraphernalia, all the extra stuff you're throwing on, like it creates dis like it's it's not bad in and of itself. It's fine. Follow the food laws, do the stuff. But don't take it so far that you're imposing this on everybody over knowing Jesus. Because that's where this thing lays, like that's where, that's the crucial piece. Knowing him, being known by him. And so there are times where we could say, where the Lord might say, you know, I want to work in this area of your life. And we might say, you know, I'm going to keep going through my motions because that's way easier than you messing with that area of my life. Now, most of us would never say it that way. But I wonder if I say it that way, if some of us might go, oh, yeah. Been there. Don't want to tell my Sunday school class about it. But I've been there. So you just hear Paul 
pleading with them. Pleading with them. Don't turn back. Don't go backwards. With Jesus, it's further up, further in, deeper still. And you get this vision of what he's after at the end of the passage. My little children with whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's why we do this. Christ formed in us. Everything else is secondary. What does it look like for Jesus to be formed in me? What does it mean for Jesus to be formed in me? It means that his life, his character is reproduced in my body. And it's not just a what would Jesus do kind of thing. It's how does the Holy Spirit bring the life of Jesus, the integrity of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and implant that in my life so that it bears fruit in every aspect of my life. Take a minute and ask yourself, do I know anyone in whom Christ has been formed like that? And if so, how did that happen? And is Christ being formed in me like that? And if so, what's, how does it happen? If not, what's getting in the way? Remember, friends, it's not an either-or for us either. It's not a, like, doing the Christian stuff or knowing Jesus. <laughs> like, if you know Jesus... You're going to show up to worship him and minister to him and shower your love upon him. But it's possible to go through those motions and learn a lot about him. It's possible to go to Sunday school and learn a lot about the Bible. It's possible to go to seminary and learn a lot of theology. Trust me. It's possible to be a missionary and not be known by God. And that seems to me one of the great tragedies. To have all this information about but not be known by. I'm reminded of this sometimes when I read academic theology. <laughs> There's a lot of people who know a lot about God, but that transformative power does not always come through. And all of our study and all of our knowledge, and you guys know me, I'm into the study, I'm into that kind of stuff, is always aimed. It's never an end in itself. Knowledge about God is not an end in itself. It leads to another goal. It leads to another purpose. To know him and be known by him. To that covenantal, mutual, self-giving, perfect love. When that happens, we'll begin to see Christ formed in us.
in each of us and in all of us. That's when the mission takes off. That's when the world starts to change. When we are so vigilant that we will let nothing, nothing stand between us and Jesus having every inch of our hearts. Everything's yes, Jesus. No matter what you ask, it's yes, 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 yes. That's what it means to be known by so the invitation is pretty simple, folks. Do you want to know him better, more deeply? And do you want to be known by him? Do you want to stop letting the normal rhythms and motions be enough? as you discover it's not enough? And do you want to come to a place where you say to the Lord, I want Christ formed in me no matter what it takes. No matter what it takes. That's the hope of the gospel. It's hope for us and it's hope for the world. In a moment, we're going to come to the table. Tables are intimate spaces, even more so in the ancient world than today. I've heard others remark, and it strikes me as well, that the night before he was betrayed, Jesus did not give his disciples a theology lecture. He brought them to a table and gave them a meal. Because that's where you get to know someone. Not, not just about them. The table is the place where you know him and where he knows you. The table is the place where you say, I got nothing, I'm bringing nothing. Just give me Jesus. My hands are empty. All I can do is cling to the cross. So I wonder when you come in a moment, when you take that bread or the wafer and you swallow it, if your prayer can be, I want to be known by you, Jesus. And I don't want anything to get in the way. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.